Let's open up our Bibles now together to Romans chapter 9 as we continue on in this glorious epistle that the Lord has given to us through our brother Paul. We are continuing on in chapter 9. We're going to be again reading from verse 22, sort of get a running start into our passage this morning. Romans chapter 9, verse 22, hear the word of the Lord. What if God, desiring to show his wrath, to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. Her who was not my beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living word this inerrant, perfect gift that you have given to us, that by your Spirit, through your Word, we hear the voice of our God. You cause hearts that are dead in sin to live. You break the chains of slavery. You give sight to blinded eyes. You transform your people more and more into the likeness of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that by your Spirit, through your Word this morning, you would accomplish all of your good purposes, that which only you can do, I pray for myself this morning as I proclaim your word, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart, would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we have been studying deep theology in all the book of Romans, but especially as we have gotten into Romans chapter 9, it's like we've been dropped into the middle of the ocean of of this vast theology of our immeasurable God. Chapter 9 has been unfolding for us what is called the doctrine of election, a doctrine that has sparked much debate, not only in our day, but throughout all of church history, really. And unfortunately, it is something that has this debate generated more heat than light. In other words, it hasn't always been very productive. Uh, You have... Christians who fight. You have Christians who slander one another over this, who have made this doctrine a test of Christian unity and have been not only ungracious with one another, but downright unchristian with one another over this topic. We, in fact, in this church have had some people leave citing this very doctrine that's being taught in Romans chapter 9 as the reason. So it has touched us here in this church. Well, we are not studying this in order to debate anything. That is not why we are studying Romans chapter 9. We are certainly not studying this topic so that we can hear man's opinions and follow after men. We are studying this to hear from the Word of God. 
That's why we are studying this. It's to know our God. It's to know his great salvation. It is to worship him. It is to humble ourselves before him. It is to submit ourselves to his living word. That is why we study books verse by verse. And that is why we are not skipping Romans chapter 9, but are taking our time to see what it actually says and what it actually means. And so far, we've learned much from the word of God concerning the doctrine of election. One of the first things we've seen is that Election is clearly taught in Scripture, right? Here in Romans 9, for instance, no honest reading of this could come away saying that's not what Paul is actually saying here. This is our fifth sermon in Romans chapter 9. So if it's the first one you're joining us for, your head might spin a little bit this morning. That's okay. It's just the turkey. It's just the leftover turkey. You'll be fine. Secondly, though, election begins with the sovereign choice of God. Jesus said this in John chapter 6, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And then in verse 44, he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on that last day. So no one... Absolutely no one comes unless the Father initiates. Every single person that he chooses will come and will be raised on that last day. Election begins with the sovereign choice of God. Next, election exalts the sovereignty of God. God is perfect. God is entirely sovereign. He does what he wants, when he wants, the way he wants. He never has to ask anyone's permission to do it. He alone has the right to determine and decree whatever he wants. We see this throughout Scripture, Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Paul has shown us here in Romans chapter 9, verse 15, this amazing statement of the sovereign rule of God. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. In verse 18, he says, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. And whatever he pleases to do is right. It's good. It's just. He is just in doing so. In, in, in showing mercy to whomever he wills and hardening whomever he wills, God is just. God is fair. God is right. It is, in fact, his right as God to do whatever he pleases. Fourth, then, election elevates God and minimizes man. There's a corresponding scale here. The higher our view of ourselves, the lower our view of God becomes. And the higher our view of God becomes, the lower our view of ourselves becomes. In verse 20 of chapter 9, Paul says, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and the other for dishonorable use? Now, we know that God is sovereign. And we want God to be sovereign. In a lot of areas. In most areas, we want God to be sovereign. But the idea of, of God's t- 
total sovereign power and purpose when it comes to the matter of salvation. Who will be saved and who won't? That's just a little too sovereign for us, for most people. We don't want God to be that sovereign. We don't don't want him being sovereign in that area. In that area, we want to be sovereign. And so there are different responses we can have to the doctrine of election. We can respond in one of, of three ways to this doctrine. The first is we can just outright reject it. We reject the doctrine of election. This, I would say, is the most popular view in America and overwhelmingly in this community in which we live. It's the view most of us were raised with. It is an outright rejection of the doctrine of election. We can adopt the view that God does not actually choose the believer. He only sees ahead of time who's going to choose him. And so in response to their actions, he goes back and retroactively elects them. This is a popular view. It's the view, if you grew up Mennonite, that you were taught. And the only problem with that view is the Bible, because it sounds good to us. It sounds right to our human logic. It just happens to contradict the teaching of Scripture. That's the only problem there. It it minimizes God and elevates man. But by making God the responder and us the sovereign, God sees what we sovereign creatures will do, and he must respond in kind. Does that sound like the God of Scripture to you? It doesn't. Scripture doesn't ever talk like this. Scripture never talks about God as the responder to the things that we do, as the one who's not in control. This kind of thinking comes from human reason and philosophy, well-meaning though it may be. So that's possible response number one. We just reject it. Possible response number two is we overreact to the doctrine of election. In other words, there's a ditch on the one side of the road, but there's a ditch on the other side of the road as well. One extreme is to say that man is responsible for coming to faith, that our will is sovereign, and God just responds to that. That's the ditch on this side of the road. But on the other side of the road, the other extreme is this. God does everything, so man doesn't have to do anything. Man doesn't even need to respond. Man can live however he wants, because if he's elect, he's in, and it doesn't matter. This was the extreme view held by many in William Carey's day in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. Carey wanted to go to India to reach the unreached people there with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he was told, we don't do that. We don't need to do those things. He was told, sit down, young man. If God wants the heathen to be saved, they'll be saved. Well, Kerry said, that's not the kind of thing I read in Scripture. And he went anyway and became the father of modern missions. But, but this overreaction, this ditch on the other side of the road says, we don't need to do anything since God does everything. Now, Paul's going to clear this up for us as we move on into chapter 10 and further into Romans. Chapter 9 is dealing with God's sovereign election, God's choosing of who will be his. But chapter 10 deals with the decision and responsibility of man. And so in chapter 10, verse 13, we're going to read this when we get there. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How will they call on him whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? 
And so we need to stay out of the ditch on both sides of the road here. What, what do the scriptures tell us? Scriptures tell us from God's perspective, from, from the eternal perspective, we are predestined for salvation from before creation. Again, if these words make you uncomfortable, they are Bible words. I'm sorry if they make you uncomfortable, but you'll read them in the text of your scripture. So we ought to grow to love them and not be made uncomfortable by them. Scripture says from God's perspective, from the eternal perspective, the thing driving all of this is God's choosing before creation. But from our perspective, we must believe. We must come. We must bow our knee. Even though God loved us first, we must love him. The gospel message has not been preached unless there has been a call for a decision You must choose. You must come. Acts 16, for example, when Paul spoke to the Philippian jailer, the jailer approaches Paul by night. In verse 30, he says, what must I do to be saved? Do you remember what Paul said to him? Do you remember Paul looked at him and said, well, are you chosen? Have you been predestined? Do you know, are you one of God's elect?" Do you understand the decrees of the sovereign God from before creation and the predestination of the saint before the foundation of the world? Are you one of those people? You remember when Paul said that? You don't, because that's not what Paul said. What did Paul say in verse 31? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Oh, friends, that's our message. That's what we concern ourselves with. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The only one who knows ahead of time who the elect are is God, not us. If someone is burdened in their heart, if someone desires to confess their sin, to turn from their sin, to run to Christ, that means God has already been working in that person by his spirit. He has moved towards them in his grace, removing their blinders, regenerating their dead hearts, bringing them to spiritual life. And if he does that, it means he chose them before the foundation of the world. He chose them specifically. He chose them individually from the foundation of the earth. Jesus Christ took, took their name to the cross with him. But from our perspective, we don't know who that is. We don't know who that is. That's not what we're called to concern ourselves with. We're not called to figure that out. Who's the elect? Who's predestined? We're called to go into all the world proclaiming the gospel and calling men to obedience and faith. That's our call. Charles Spurgeon was challenged on this. Spurgeon famously believed and taught sovereign election and yet was the most passionate evangelist you would ever come in contact with. His preaching so filled with the call to choose, to decide, to come And he was confronted. Why do you preach the gospel so passionately? Why why do you call on people to come to saving faith? In other words, why, Spurgeon, are you such an evangelist preaching whosoever will come can be saved? If you claim the Bible teaches sovereign election, and Spurgeon said this, if the Lord had put a yellow stripe down the back of the elect, I'd go up and down the street lifting up shirt tails, finding out who had the yellow stripe, and then I'd give them the gospel. But God didn't do it that way. He told me to preach the gospel to every creature that whosoever will may come. 
Jesus says, In him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. So I preach the gospel to all, and God brings his sheep. That's our call. That's what we concern ourselves with. And so we want to avoid the first reaction, which is to reject the doctrine of election entirely. And we want to avoid the second, which is to overreact to it and become fatalistic. What's our third possibility? It's to accept the doctrine of election as plainly taught in Scripture. The Bible reveals that both God's sovereign electing of his own, as well as the responsibility of mankind to trust in Christ alone and submit to him in worship and obedience. So friends, instead of arguing about election, here's what we could do. We could just come to Christ. Instead of arguing about election, we could call our loved ones, our friends, those we encounter to come to Christ. That's what we could do. We don't need to throw stones at each other. We don't need to slander each other. We don't need to fight each other. We don't need to quit our church. We could come to Christ. That's that's our part. Proclaim the gospel. Call others to come. Trusting in his promise that whoever comes, he will receive. And he will never cast out. Preach the gospel to all, as Spurgeon said, and let God bring his sheep. The sovereign election by God on the one hand, the responsibility of man to believe in Christ on the other, is in fact how Paul wraps up this discussion on the doctrine of election in Romans 9. It's these these two twin truths. This week, we'll see God's purpose and mercy and grace in election. Next week, he begins to address man's responsibility. And then as we go through the rest of the book of Romans, Paul's going to be dealing with our end of things, what it is that we ought to do in response to all this deep and glorious theology he's given us in the first nine chapters. So what does this passage show us about the purpose and mercy and grace of God? First, God's purpose in election is to make known his glory. Look again with me at verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So so God's greatest purpose in election is revealed to us here. It is to make known his glory to the recipients of his mercy. In other words, God has purpose to reveal the glory of his mercy against the backdrop of his justice, his righteous judgment of evil. So, So how can Paul say that God has a good purpose to reveal mercy and all these people rejecting him. Because that's what Paul's talking about here. God's enduring these people whom he did not choose to make his own, these people who, who rebel and reject him. And Paul's saying God has a good purpose in that, and it's to reveal his mercy to you, Christian, to you, saint. How can that possibly be? How can God's purposes be served and be good with people rejecting Jesus? the Savior of the world? How can God's mercy be displayed in that? Well, first of all, because God has every right to immediately judge the wicked. 
God has every right to kill every single sinner on the spot when they sin. Verse 22 says he hasn't done that. He's been patient. That's a sign of his mercy. We are all, friends, doing better than we deserve. God doesn't immediately rain down judgment on sinners. Instead, he patiently endures the sin of every reprobate. Consider Judas as an example of this. The Lord Jesus' dealings with Judas. John, in, in the Gospel of John, Jesus calls Judas devil. He, he calls him the son of destruction. And yet Jesus chose him to be one of this small handful of disciples who would walk closely with him for three years. He knew he was a betrayer. And he knelt and washed his feet. Jesus gave him every opportunity to repent. Judas had every opportunity to repent. God is patient with sinners, and that's a display of his grace and his mercy. First of all, But Paul says in verse 23 that God does this for a purpose in order to display his mercy to his chosen ones. So so God not only shows his mercy and his patience towards the sinner, but he also causes those who belong to him to be able to see both what we deserve ourselves and did not receive from God and what God in his astounding grace has given us instead. So when we see the sinner walking in rebellion and sin, and we see God judge them for it, we are reminded of what should have been coming to us and the grace that we've been shown instead. When you go to the jewelry store and you look at a fine diamond, they don't bring out a brilliant white sheet of paper and set the diamond on it and say, now consider the beauty of this. What do they bring out? They bring that black velvet out and they set the diamond on it. Why? Because that stark background in contrast to the the, the dazzling splendor of that diamond lets you see even more clearly the beauty that that diamond has. It's, It's even more vivid. Likewise, against the backdrop of sin and rebellion and rejection of God and hardness of heart and condemnation, God has chosen to display that he has given us gifts that we could never deserve. That, that, that we've been given mercy instead of judgment. That we've been given friendship with him. That we've be, been made citizens of his kingdom. That we've been made sons and daughters of the most high king. And, and against the black backdrop of sin and God's justice, we see his grace and mercy more clearly than we otherwise could have. Apart from his just judgment of sin and sinners, we wouldn't know what God's mercy and grace was. We would just think this is how it works. In all that he does, God has good and glorious purposes. Friends, that is so important for us to remember. One gift of the doctrine of election, even as it makes our heads spin, even as it makes us feel like we're out afloat in the ocean and we can't touch the bottom and we'll never see the bottom and we're not in control of all of this and it's scary for us. One thing it reminds us and it shows us so clearly is God has good and glorious purpose in everything that he does. We may not know what those are. We might never know in this life 
what those good and glorious purposes are. But know this, God always has a plan to reveal the glory of his mercy to his people. In this passage, Paul gives us three examples of of how he does this. Example number one of God's mercy, the chosen Gentiles. Look as we go on in verse 25. As indeed he says to Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. Her who was not my beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. These words come from the context of Hosea's marriage to Gomer, his wife Gomer. God had called the prophet Hosea to marry a prostitute who would be unfaithful to him over and over and over again. Gomer's unfaithfulness and adultery provided a visible picture of Israel's spiritual unfaithfulness and idolatry. But here, Paul applies this statement to the calling of the Gentiles to salvation. They were not God's people yet. They had not received the covenant. But in his mercy, God would make them his people. It's it's Old Testament proof, actually, that this was the plan all along. That God intended to call this specific people to himself, both of Jews and of Gentiles, from every nation. And Paul says this is an illustration of God's mercy. The Gentiles had not received the covenant promises that the Jews had received. The Gentiles were debauched. They were idolaters. They were enemies of God's people. They deserved judgment. They deserved wrath. And God displays the immensity of his mercy by choosing them to be his children. In 1 Peter chapter 2, the Apostle Peter applies this Old Testament prophecy directly to the church. He says this in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Oh, friends, the salvation of every sinner is a display of the mercy of God. The salvation of any person is a display of the mercy of God. We are all deserving of judgment, but that is not what we got if we are in Christ. Christian, the only thing you deserved was judgment. The only thing you deserved was wrath. The only thing you've ever earned for yourself in your standing with God is condemnation. And that is not what you have been given. Instead, God has given us favor and love and kindness. Salvation, again, it is not a matter of fairness. It is a matter of mercy. And throughout this chapter, Paul has highlighted two important truths for us. One is this. God's judgment is always just. He always judges justly. Whenever God judges a sinner, it is always right. It is always good. He has never been unfair to anyone ever. As we saw earlier in the chapter, when God said to Pharaoh, I raised you up to knock you down, he was not being unfair to Pharaoh. Pharaoh got exactly what he deserved. 
God's judgment is always just. Secondly, God's mercy is always undeserved. It is always undeserved. Mercy by its very nature is undeserved. Mercy by its very nature is never owed to anyone. It's, it's not deserved. It's not merited. It's not earned. It is always a free and gratuitous display of amazing love. That's what mercy is. So the question is not, why doesn't God save everyone? Why doesn't God choose everyone? The question is, why would God save anyone? It's all of mercy. It's all of grace. The second example of God's mercy that he gives is the chosen remnant of the Jews. So the first example is the calling of the Gentiles to salvation. The second example is the chosen remnant of the Jews. He goes on in verse 27, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. Looking back to to the prophet Hosea and his dealings with Gomer, we, we see these pronouncements from God of Israel abandoning her covenant with God. And we see this throughout the Old Testament prophets. It's the language of infidelity and divorce that God uses. You have broken the covenant completely. They had rejected their Messiah on top of it. And yet God reveals his mercy by saving a remnant of Israel. Though none of Israel deserved God's mercy, all of Israel deserved his judgment, and yet God chose a remnant for himself. The the root of salvation is always the gracious choosing of God. It is all of grace. It is all of mercy. The root of condemnation, on the other hand, is in ourselves. The root of salvation is in God and his choosing. The root of condemnation is in us. It's what we've earned. It's what we deserve. We have done what we wanted every step of the way. In fact, the the fact that we would ever question the fairness of God in the doctrine of election proves that we don't think very biblically about ourselves. We, We don't think biblically about mankind. We tend to think that God has an obligation to save. We would never say that. If, if you were to be asked, I, I trust if, if you're a member of this church and someone said, does God owe salvation to anyone? You would give a quick no to that question. We'd never say that, but here's what proves that we really think that. We think it's terribly unfair if God chooses some and not others. What would make us think that? What would make us think it was unfair for God to choose some and not others? It's that we think he owes it to everybody. We think God has an obligation, but that's not how the Bible ever, ever talks about God. He's no man's debtor. God's obligation is to justice. That's what it's to. He's not obligated to mercy. That would make mercy not mercy anymore. Justice demands God's righteous wrath against sin must be satisfied. That debt must be paid in full. And the astounding thing is God himself provides a way for his justice to be satisfied so that he can shower mercy on undeserving sinners. But friends, that is not God's obligation. 
He doesn't have to do that. He did not have to do that. He didn't have to do that for any of the Jews. He didn't have to do it for any of the Gentiles. He didn't have to do it for me. He didn't have to do it for you. But what a gracious, kind, and merciful God that he has done it. But without God's electing intervention, the natural result is always death and judgment. That is what we deserve. That is what we have earned. That is what we are working for. Verse 29 then says, as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom, become like Gomorrah. Who are Sodom and Gomorrah? Just picture this, the most depraved, wicked, evil thing you can imagine. Think right now in our world of whoever it is you consider to be the most vile, depraved, wicked, evil, worthless people on the planet. That's who he's talking about. If the Lord had hosted not left off offspring, we would have been like them. It's an uncomfortable truth that Paul is giving us here, that if God doesn't intervene on our behalf with his grace, the natural result, the sure outcome, is always death in judgment. God's mercy is the one thing that stands between us and judgment. It is the one thing that stands between us and complete depravity. It is the one thing that stands between us and death. It's the one thing that stands between us and us just being the worst possible thing you could ever imagine. You're capable of that. The credit for our salvation then belongs entirely to God. His intervening on our behalf. If he doesn't intervene, if he doesn't take the initiative, if he doesn't choose us, regenerate us, give us grace, only death in judgment awaits, and that is what is right and good and fair and just. So Paul looks at this Jewish remnant, these Jewish believers, as he writes this letter, and he says, even you, even me, would be just like Sodom and Gomorrah if not for the grace of God. There's, there's no worse thing he can say to them. There's no worse group of people. These are the people they would look at and they would say, we would never be like them. We would never be depraved and wicked like that. But Paul says, if not for the grace of God, we would be thoroughly wicked and depraved and evil. There's a story told about the great English reformer John Bradford. He was, he was martyred under Queen Mary I, known as Bloody Mary, for how many Christian martyrs she had killed. The story's told of Bradford, though, that he once witnessed a, a criminal being led off to execution. He was on his way to be executed for his horrendous crimes, and Bradford turned to one of his companions and says, There but for the grace of God goes John Bradford. He, he knew that apart from God's grace, his heart was no better than the heart of that criminal who was being executed for his crimes. That's where we get our expression today. There but for the grace of God, go I. It's this acknowledgement that it's, the, it's only the grace of God that restrains us. 
a singer-songwriter named Sufjan Stevens. He expressed a, a similar sentiment in his song, John Wayne Gacy Jr. Now, it's a rather indelicate title for a song because John Wayne Gacy was a serial killer who killed at least 33 men and boys and then hid their corpses under the floorboards of his house, which is not behavior I recommend to anyone. But the song ends with these words. In my best behavior, I'm really just like him. Look beneath the floorboards for the secrets I have hid. That's exactly what Paul's saying here. Apart from God's grace, we look just like Sodom and Gomorrah. We look just like the worst, most depraved, most heinous sinners we can possibly imagine. And the only thing that stands between us and the worst, most depraved sinners we can imagine is the grace of God. That's it. Because friends, our hearts are capable of untold evil apart from the grace of God. And if you want fellowship with the living God, then you've only got one hope. That is the grace and the mercy of God. And there's only one way to find the grace of God, and that is to go to the Lord Jesus Christ. And his promises are true if you come to him. If you will come to him, if you will trust in him, if you will rest in Christ alone, if you will believe the gospel, if you will bow your knee before him as Lord, then you will find that you will receive mercy. His grace will be there for you in abundance. What you will find is that you are an object of his mercy, receiving from him all the glories of his mercy. What you will find is that he's at work. This, this, this statement that Paul makes is so mind-blowing in, in Romans 9, that, that God is doing all of these things for the benefit of the objects of his mercy. You're going to find out I'm one of them. This is the most glorious thing. Our part is not to figure out Am I among the elect? Have I been predestined? We need not concern ourselves with those thoughts. We come to Christ. Now, this same Paul is going to say to Christians, be diligent to make your calling and election sure. In other words, if you are hearing this this morning and it just rattles you and you're saying, how do I even know if I'm elect? I've, I've said this week after week while we've been in Romans 9. That what Paul means by making your calling and election sure is this. Run to the Lord Jesus Christ. Bow your knee before him in obedience and humble submission. And you will prove yourself to have been chosen by him before the foundation of the world. But our part is to come. Our part is to submit. Our part is to obey. Our part is to proclaim the gospel, calling whosoever will to come to him, and that whosoever will come, he will receive and he will never cast out. Well, these truths matter. Maybe you're hearing me close with this and you're going, well, so why are we taking all this time talking about it? Because God saw fit to write it in his word. It matters. It will change your Tuesday afternoon, friends, if you realize this whole thing's not riding on you and your boneheaded attempts at obedience. But it's Christ who has marked you, who has made you alive, 
and who says, he who the Father gives to me, I will never cast out. I'm passionate about this doctrine because I believe Scripture is passionate about this doctrine and because I know that it changes life for us on a daily basis. I got no interest in arguments. I got no interest in church splits. I want to know God as he's revealed himself in his word. And friends, this is the best of good news. The best of good news. So once you come to Christ... Once you come to him and find out that these mind-blowingly glorious statements are being made about you. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living word. Lord, we acknowledge that these truths we've been studying are challenging for us. They, they challenge our natural minds. They challenge our, our human assumptions about fairness. They challenge our misconceptions about our worthiness and about what grace is. Would you cause us now to look to Christ? Cause us now to lift our eyes to our Savior, the author and the finisher of our faith. Lord, we want to rejoice in you. We want these glorious truths that you have in your kindness revealed to us in your word to produce in us worship and thankfulness and humility and joy, and passion to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. Confidence to know that our God reigns and rules, that he will accomplish all of his good purposes. And so we ought to go forward in boldness as your church, knowing that the very gates of hell will not prevail against your church. So God, we rejoice in you. We glory in you. We pray, God, that you would open our understanding by your spirit, but above all, to cause us to trust in you, even in the areas we can't fully understand and can't quite wrap our minds around. Cause us to trust in you and to hope in you. Produce in us hope and joy and courage, we pray, for your kingdom's sake, for the eternal joy of all of your people. In Jesus' name, amen.